Good morning. Let's start with a quick word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you are here this morning. It's so clear and evident. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us very clearly. In your name we pray. Amen. It is a great privilege for me to stand in front of you this morning. My name is Zach, my wife Julie and I, this is the end of our second year living in Beijing with our two sons, Eli and Jasper. Before we lived here in China, we lived in the Eastern European country of Hungary. We worked there for 12 years with high school students. And the first couple of years there, it took us a while to realize that like most places in the world, there's sort of a, a rhythm to certain parts of life. And we realized that for most Hungarian people, August is the one month that they tend to take vacations. Now, the first couple of August that we were there, we were busy, but finally an August came around when we had some more free time, and we decided we would like to take a vacation somewhere. And we looked around, and we realized that for some reason, in August, in Hungary, you can find very cheap flights from Hungary to the country of Egypt. And we decided, yes, this is what we will do. So we bought the tickets, and as the day came closer, I became more and more excited of this idea of going to Egypt. And I thought to myself, now, if I go to Egypt... I don't just want to go to Egypt and then do in Egypt all the normal things that I do everywhere else. In other words, I don't want to go to Egypt and then eat at a McDonald's. I've done that before. If I want to go to Egypt, I want to eat e Egyptian food. I, I want to look at Egyptian artifacts. I want to feel like I'm really in Egypt. So finally the day came, we got on the airplane, it began to fly over the beautiful blue Mediterranean and looking down at the water and I'm imagining to myself, you know, it's not going to be that long before we are in Egypt. And I'm looking out the plane window and I see way off in the distance, there's this change. There's this thin kind of tan line way off in the distance. And I'm not sure what it is. And then I realize what I'm looking at way off in the distance is just the beginnings of the sands of the deserts of Egypt. In a couple seconds, we've left the water behind. I'm looking down at nothing but desert, and I can almost imagine the feeling of this heat baking off of the sand. And then once again, I notice a change. I see there's this strange winding strip of green, almost like a, like a giant snake is lying on the desert floor. I don't know what it is, and then it dawns on me. What I'm looking at from the height of the flight is the River Nile one of the grandest, most famous rivers in the world. And when I see that, I thought, it has happened. We have arrived in Egypt. So the plane lands, we, we go to our hotel, and that evening I have to make my decision. Now, what is my first meal in Egypt going to be? So I'm going down the line, I see there's a lot of hamburgers there, and I don't want the hamburgers, and there's a lot of steak, and I've had steak before. I'm looking, what will it be? And then I see there's this platter of something that I don't recognize. I get closer, and I see there's a little sign in front of the platter that says, fish from the river Nile. And I thought, it's almost like a sign. I mean, I, I saw this river from way up there, and now I can take something from that river and put it into myself. So I took a big piece of fish, put it on the plate, and I ate it. There's a woman, a long-distance swimmer, whose name is Lynn Cox, who has written a book called Swimming to Antarctica. And in this book, she talks about some of the famous long-distance swims that she has tried to do. As the title would suggest, she once swam from the southern tip of South America through frigid waters to get to Antarctica. She has many times gone across the English Channel. And in this book, she says, by far, one of the hardest swims she has ever had to do was when she tried to swim the River Nile. Because the River Nile is one of the dirtiest, 
most polluted rivers in the world. She said as she was swimming through the water, she saw stuff floating by her on the water that you don't want to see floating by you on the water. She said it was like swimming through warm oil. And as she was swimming, all of a sudden, from one second to the next, this hand went into the water, and she said she felt her hand go through something under the surface of the water that was soft and spongy. She pulled her arm back and saw she had just punched her arm through the carcass of a dead dog. I ate a fish (laughs) that had been swimming in that water. About halfway through the next day, I started to get that feeling that we've all had before. It's like your body saying to you, you're not sick yet, but you will be. (laughs) That next evening, I knew I was not going to be able to eat anything. And Julie, Julie said, okay, you don't have to eat anything, but just come with me to the cafeteria and sit at the table with our son, Eli. We only had Eli at that time. And then I'm going to go get us some food. And then when I get back, you can go back to the hotel room and do whatever it is you have to do. And I said, okay, I'll try to do this. So I sat down there with Eli. She goes off to get some food. And as I'm sitting there, I am not kidding, slowly the tables around us started to fill up and everybody seemed to be eating the fish, almost as though the fish were aware that they were surrounding me. And I felt like I was a human thermometer with the mercury rising in my throat. I didn't know if I was going to be able to make it. Finally, Julie gets back with the food and I said, okay, I'm going. And easily, one of the longest journeys of my life was when I had to go across the hotel lobby to get back to my room. Because as we all know, the hotel lobbies are filled with things that you shouldn't vomit on. Things like beautiful Egyptian rugs, grand pianos, other people... I finally get back to the room, I throw open the door to the bathroom, and I had a wonderful night in there, just me and my friend, the White Bowl. And I share this story with you because in case it wasn't already clear, although I'm sure it is, the decisions that we make really do have consequences. In the fall of 1999, two cruise ships were launched from Miami to compete with the global cruise industry. These ships were launched into the Mediterranean, into the Caribbean Ocean with the idea that they would be able to compete on a very high level. The goal was they were going to spend a couple of days at sea and then they would dock at a private island specifically purchased for these cruises. And the island was outfitted to basically be the height of any kind of island paradise that we could imagine. But even before the ship got to the island, the ship itself was built to be essentially like a, a floating five-star hotel. In other words, any person going onto that boat should expect the best experience that they had ever had. Anything that they wanted to eat or drink, countless entertainment, movie theaters, music concerts, improvisational comedy theaters, it was supposed to be the best cruise experience available. The only reason I know this is because in the summer of 1999, this company came to where I was living at the time in the United States to hold a series of auditions to hire improvisational actors to work on the ship for six months. Two of my friends heard about this, and they asked if I'd be interested in going with them to the audition. And even though I didn't know what it was, I thought, I'll go along, I'm sure it'll be an interesting experience. And and sure enough, by the time the day was done, I thought it had been a very unique chance. Two days later, I received a phone call from this company asking me if I would be interested in working on the ship for a six-month period of time. If I had said yes, the following would have happened. I would have been flown from where I lived to Miami, Florida. 
They would have put me up in a hotel during the time that we were waiting for the ship to be ready to go. Once the ship launched, if I wasn't on that particular ship, I'd be back in the hotel. If I was on the ship, I had my own private cabin. And essentially, during the day, I could do anything that any other tourist was allowed to do. As much as I wanted to eat or drink, I could go to the island, I could do anything I wanted during the day. The only time I had to work was at night when the Improv Comedy Club was open. But if anyone's ever seen improv comedy, you may know it's not really like working. It's like they're paying you to have a really good time. And if I had agreed to this, they would have given me several hundred dollars a week, which because I had no costs of my own, I could have taken it, put it into a bank account, and at the end of six months for someone my age, it would have been a tidy sum. When I heard this offer on the phone, I immediately remembered something my father had told me just a couple of weeks before that. He said, Zach, if you decide to do something significant with your life for the Lord, you should expect that the moment you have made that decision, another opportunity will come along that in many ways will seem too good to refuse. And I remembered that because it was just a couple of weeks before that that I had decided to move with my wife, Julie, to the country of Hungary to work with high school students. This is a story that sometimes when I'm talking to students, I share, especially when they are at a critical decision-making point in their own life. Now, speaking today, some of you who are older, you may be tempted to think that I'm only speaking today to the students. And there is some truth in that. Today, there are a lot of students here, and I have the very valuable opportunity in the upcoming weeks and months to spend a lot more time with them, and I am really looking forward to that. So yes, it would be silly for me not to speak to the students right now. But I want you to be careful, those of you who are older, because as I'm speaking to the students, you may find out that actually, I'm also speaking to you. So let's enjoy that transition as it happens. Why do I want to talk to the students today? Because I think there has never, ever, in the history of the world, been a youth generation like this one. And you don't have to take my word for it. Here are some facts about this youth generation. Today's youth are going to make more money than any other youth generation in the history of the world. More than my generation, more than my parents' generation, unimaginable amounts of cash is available to today's students. Today's students are going to invent a new communication system based on everything we know about the internet and social networking technology, but this new communication system, which has not yet been invented, will be so radical, so revolutionary, it is not yet possible to know what it will look like, but they will invent it that's a fact. Today's youth generation will invent the cure for Alzheimer's, the cure for AIDS, probably cancer. The scientists already know this. They look at what's happened until now in history, they look at what's happening now, and they can tell you what's going to happen next. There are more positive opportunities available to this youth generation than ever before in history, and when it comes to Christian youth, the opportunities, and in some ways, the dangers only become much much higher. And that's why I know it's frustrating for the students who are here that sometimes when you feel like you are ready to take that next step because you know what kinds of opportunities you have in front of you, it's frustrating when someone like a youth pastor or a parent or a teacher says something to you like, okay, but just be aware of what's coming up. It kind of almost sounds like what they're saying is, be patient. 
And if you're a student today, that is the last thing you want to hear. They're thinking, be, be patient. What are you talking about, old person? We don't have time to be patient. Have you not seen the world that we're living in? If we don't take advantage of these opportunities right now, what could happen? God wants to use us in a huge way. And that's true. But do you know why so often from your parents, from your youth pastors, from your teachers, you hear them telling you in a way to be patient? Because if you choose to do something significant with your life for the Lord, God wants you to do that. But he also wants you to know Christians who decide to do that, a lot of times, they suffer. The world needs you greatly. And a lot of times, you're going to suffer. My wife Julie and I have a friend named Hope. She was a missionary for many years in Indonesia. She lived under very primitive circumstances, a small little shack, cooked her food off a rickety gas stove, One morning, Hope was packing up her stuff to travel from one island to the other. Her roommate was in the kitchen cooking. And all of a sudden, from the kitchen, Hope heard a huge explosion. The stove had exploded, covering her roommate with burning gas. Hope ran into the kitchen. Her roommate was on the ground, burning, screaming. And you know what she was screaming? She was screaming, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. That's remarkable. It's remarkable because eyewitnesses a few hundred years ago in England, when Christians would be burned for their faith, would say that as the people began to burn, they would cry out words like, I burn so slowly. I burn too slowly. It's because it's a very, very painful way to die. And when I heard this story from our friend Hope, I wondered, how much patience does it take to burn to death? But living where we lived in Hungary for so many years, I realized I don't have to go to Indonesia to hear stories like this. I just have to look sometimes right next door. Next door to Hungary is the country of Romania. And for many years, there was a pastor there under communism. Many of you have heard his name, Richard Wormbrandt. He was tortured under communism. A number of years ago, American pastor John Piper heard that Richard Wormbrandt was going to be speaking, and he wanted to go see this man speak. But when John Piper arrived, he said the circumstance was kind of strange. When you imagine someone speaking, you think of something like this, where one person is standing in front of the audience, everyone is sitting on the chairs in front of them. John Piper said, this man was not standing in front of us. He was not standing in front of us because he couldn't stand. He had been so tortured during his time in prison that the nerves on the bottom of his feet had been damaged to the point where he couldn't stand for long periods of time. So instead, this man was kind of sitting on the raised platform and all of these people were sitting on the floor before him at his feet. Many times in past interviews, this pastor would say, people ask me, what was it like to be tortured for my faith? And I say, you can try it for yourself. He said, take a tablespoon, fill it with salt, swallow the salt, And then try to wait just one hour before you drink water. He said, after one hour, your body will be screaming in thirst. And then he said, try to imagine me and my comrades in prison when the guards would take three, four, five heaping tablespoons filled with salt and then not give us drink for hours. And John Piper said that day, this man kept repeating the same words. He kept saying, do you realize that Jesus always chose suffering. Jesus always chose suffering. 
It was like he, he sought it out. He looked for it. When he found it, he embraced it. And how could it be any other way? The Lord of the universe leaves the most comfortable place imaginable to come here, to this place, to tell us the truth. It is a model of a life built on following suffering. And there are so many people who have since well learned that story, including one guy who I like very much named Paul. Let me read you a very short, very familiar passage from the life of Paul and see if Paul has some perspective on this. This is going to be found in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 22. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas. The city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, and so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake. The prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, ran to the dungeon, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, if you know a little bit about Paul, you know it was not that many chapters before this that he had a different attitude and he had a different name. It was, in fact, Saul who was there on the road to Damascus, hating the Christians with the papers in his hand to persecute them. And probably most of you know the rest of the story. A bright light, he goes completely blind, and he hears the voice of Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? What would it be like to be blind for three days? You could try it. You could close your eyes right now and not open them again until Wednesday. And if you did that, do you know what would happen? It would change your life. You would never see things the same way again. The colors would be so vibrant, you would wonder how you ever took them for granted before that. And there is Saul, not knowing how long the blindness will last, probably hearing the words of the Lord echoing in his head for three days, why are you persecuting me? So that when he opens his eyes on the third day, it is now Paul who we see, and it is he who is here in prison. Now, if you are there with Paul, if you have seen the things that Paul has done, you know how this is going to go. And you're probably even saying to yourself, yes, it's late. We could be sleeping. But I know Paul. We're not going to be sleeping. We're going to be singing songs long into the night. So, okay, Paul, okay, I'm tired, but you're in charge. We'll sing. And then the next moment, there's an earthquake. The doors fly open. And if you are there with Paul, I guarantee you are thinking to yourself, Paul, yes! I gotta hand it to you, Paul. I wanted to sleep. It was your idea to sing. Paul, look at this. Look what God has done. Paul, let's go. But if you're Paul, and you've experienced the things that you've experienced, 
He's saying to himself, yeah, guys, we could go. But I got to tell you, there's something really familiar about this. Because if we leave right now, that jailer who has never met my Jesus, he's going to kill himself. And so you know what, guys? We're not going to leave. We're going to do something I learned a long time ago. We're just going to stay here in the dark just a little bit longer. And that's what they did. And the rest of the story just tells itself. The, the jailer asks them what he has to do to be saved. Some of you right now sitting here, you know what it's like to be sitting there in the dark. Some of you are experiencing suffering. And you may be asking yourself, why was I brought to this place right now to experience this? Maybe you're wondering, is it possible for me to be used in the same way in the life of some jailer? And I guarantee you, if you're asking yourself that question here this morning, he is already using you. In the Second World War, there was an Allied bomber that was flying very, very low over enemy territory because it did not want to be seen by radar. The pilot believed he was low enough, but at the last moment he saw anti-aircraft fire streaking up toward the plane, and he knew it was going to hit him. In the next moments, he felt several bullets hit the plane, and then something very strange happened. Nothing happened. The bullets designed to explode did nothing. He turned the plane around very quickly, got back to a safe airfield, put the plane down, climbed out. The technicians came, and very carefully they opened the fuel tank, and in the fuel tank they found several unexploded shells. Very carefully they cracked open one of the shells, and where the explosives should have been, there was instead a note. A note written by a prisoner of war living in a Czechoslovakian prisoner of war camp where they made these shells. And the note said... This is all that we can do for you right now. That happened. I don't know who that person was, but imagine him there. Perhaps year after year, writing those notes, never knowing if anything was actually coming of this, and all the while, who knows how many lives he saved. Praise God for sometimes allowing us to stay in the darkness just a little bit longer. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being here with you today. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of seeing so many precious souls be baptized. Thank you, Lord, that you want to use each one of us according to your wonderful plan. And we know all we have to do is take the next step not necessarily knowing what's ahead of us 10 or 15 or 20 steps from now, but maybe just the next step, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.